0: Welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by 90min. It's our Euros 2020 Daily Edition. You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler,
1: and you're listening
0: to Harry Simeon. Hello and welcome back to our Euro twenty twenty daily show. As ever, I'm your host Harry Simu, and I'm delighted to be joined once again by the brilliant Dan Deluca. Dan, how are you, sir? Buonasera. welcome back. Been I a... love this new continental welcome that you give us now that we're covering the Euros. Is it is it going to stay beyond the Euros, or I feel as
1: soon as Italy get knocked out, <laughs> um, I think I, th- I think um, it'll be abandoned.
0: Yeah, I I think so, too. I think so, too. Well, what we're going to be doing on this edition of the show is we're going to be rounding up Thursday's action just briefly because our main focus is on the big game at Wembley tomorrow night. Uh, That's Friday night. England take on Scotland. Uh, in their group. And it's a massive game for the Scots, massive game for the English as well. But the Scots are the ones in desperate need of points here. And we're going to do a little bit of an analysis leading into that game. We're going to be trying to answer some of the questions that Gareth Southgate will be uh, thinking about over the course of the next or or over the past 24 hours. And uh, yeah, we would love to hear from you guys in the live chat box as well. If you are watching us live right now, don't forget to hit the like button. It really, really does help. And if you're not already, then make sure you've subscribed to the channel. Let's kick off then with rounding up Thursday's action. And it all began with a game between the Ukraine and North Macedonia. It was a very spirited performance. From the Macedonians, but ultimately they just weren't good enough to keep up with Andre Shevchenko's men. Andre Yarmolenko scored his second of the tournament to put them in front, as did Yuremchuk to double the Ukraine's lead. Alioski converted a Macedonian penalty. Well, he converted the rebound, having missed the penalty, uh, won by the veteran Goran Pandev, but Macedonia were unable to find an equalizer. And as a result of the Netherlands' win this evening over Austria, North Macedonia are out of the competition. So they are the first uh, official casualty uh, it seems. Let's move on to the game between Denmark and Belgium. Um, Sorry, before I do that, I should probably mention that the Ukraine-Macedonia game was incredibly entertaining because I don't know about you, Dan, but when I woke up this morning, when I looked (coughs) at the fixtures last night, I looked at it and I went "Mm, I'm not sure about that one. I'm not sure if if I'll watch that one kind of properly closely if if it's worth taking a couple of hours out of the day for but it was very entertaining um, and that's been the case throughout this tournament hasn't it some of the games we didn't necessarily expect to deliver have actually come up trumps yeah it's been, it's been a really good tournament and i think um we're at that place now where
1: you still have three games a day um, but everyone's gone back to work so if a game's on at two o'clock it's for a reason You know they're they're typically (laughs) going to be, you know, the games that UEFA are not um, expecting to um for a television audience to be um to be to be as solid. So, um, but again, the games there's not. I think what's there been maybe two bad games out of how however many. So it's been a really good tournament, really entertaining, some really good good goals, um, good attacking play in the main. There's not been many um complete defensive defensive displays. I think only Sweden turned up with absolutely no interest whatsoever to uh, <laughs> to try and do anything. So out of a whole round of fixtures, it's, it's been pretty impressive. And yeah, I'm glad that, you know, the game earlier was um, entertaining. It's the first game I've not been able to watch religiously or tournament because I actually had to do some work today. Um, <laughs> and my, my boss has started to notice a, a severe downturn in quality of uh, my output. So I had, it, I had it on, on my iPad just over there and I was doing bits. But yeah, no, it's um, it's good. I think what I was going to say about this though, and North Macedonia's two performances so far, is this the problem with the Nations League? Because the Nations League is what opens the path to a team of this um, of this stature getting in. And whilst in on one hand, I like what the Nations League has done for making giving another few entertaining games, so like Italy are in a semi final of it this time. I'll, I'll watch that with more interest than if it was an international friendly. Clearly. Um, and it's opened the door for teams like North Macedonia to qualify, but the reality is, if you're qualifying from Group Four, you are by definition out of your depth. And do we really want a tournament where people aren't too fussed about watching the games? You know, this is meant to be the elite. This is meant to be
0: the elite, um, the elite level. So I just wondered what your views on that was. I, I would slightly, you know, I, I actually quite like it. I like the idea of minnows having a route into the tournaments because there are a lot of nations that for me will otherwise never get the opportunity and North Macedonia might have been one of those sides you know my family are from Cyprus so for me if something is there that gives Cyprus a potentially greater chance of going to the Euros which they'd get absolutely battered in by the way but it's just the being there the excitement of it all I think it's amazing and I I actually quite like it. I like the fact that there is now a route for the less fancied sides to get in a tournament, but that was only ever going to work if the tournament was extended to more teams. And that's what's happened um, to kind of, not just to accommodate that, but I think you can afford to do it now that you have an extended tournament. Um, I would even possibly consider extending the tournament further into the World Cup numbers. I mean, if you're going to go with 24, why not play with 32? (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think there's only I don't know, I want to say fifty-five or fifty-six. I think there's only fifty-six um European countries who compete in qualifying, or close to that number. I know some of the some of the countries in it are, you know, are barely in Europe, so you could extend it a little bit further. But I think what you said there does solve a little bit of a dilemma. Um because you could have 32 teams and then just do away with qualifying. And then run your Nations League tournament a little bit bigger concurrently. And you could still have, you know, you could have the minnows of Europe, if you like, trying to qualify for four or five spaces of that 32, perhaps. So I think there's something there's something in that, because at the end of the day, um, it's the same amount of games for each team. If you have 32, there's just more groups and there's a little bit more of a gap between games. So. You may you may as well. You've got you've got basically got half of Europe in it anyway, and we're in a position where it's so hard for a big club to miss out. And that's what you that's what UEFA wanted when they expanded it. They don't want the likes of Holland not qualifying, which has happened. I know it was a World Cup Italy not qualifying, but Italy not in Euros would be ridiculous. And they don't want to risk that as some of the middle nations are improving, like your Croatia's over the years who
0: have emerged and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move on uh, to the game between Denmark and Belgium. Uh, the Danes took the lead through Yusuf Paulsen. He opened the scoring inside just two minutes in front of an almost full Parken stadium. Tributes were paid to Christian Eriksen, who is recovering in hospital just a few hundred yards away from the stadium, with the players taking a pause in the 10th minute to applaud the Interman. Belgium, though, in the second half were a completely different side. The Bruyne, Witzel and Hazard were all came off of the bench and showed the stark difference between the Belgians at full strength and them without those aforementioned stars. Um, we've got to talk, before we talk about anything else, about Kevin De Bruyne, because the guy is an absolute magician, and we've said it time and time again when when sort of discussing general Premier League topics. But, you know, the finish, Dan, for his second goal, well, for Belgium's second goal was outstanding. But the composure he showed in the build-up to that opener was was sensational, wasn't it? Something else.
1: Yeah, it's um at his peak, is there a better player in the world? I, I I don't I don't think there is. I don't think there is. Or you know, maybe arguably Messi still is, but because he's because he's now back to just normal as opposed to you know on a different planet, perhaps you don't notice but Kevin De Bruyne on his day is brilliant. He's unplayable. Um He's got elegance, and he's got the strength, and there's he can choose what work, he can choose what he wants to do when he wants to do it, and that's what makes him so hard to play against. And that's why he, when he turns it on, that is enough normally for his team to his team to get the three points or the win or whatever it may be they're playing for. And in the second half, um, he didn't have a bad first half, but in the second half, he turned it on, and that was it. That was all it took, and that's why Belgium. I don't think they're quite good enough to win the tournament for whatever reason. I can't explain why. I just don't think they're quite there. Um, I think they've missed their window. But if he plays well, if he plays well, they've still got a chance, haven't they, to go really, really
0: deep in this tournament? Yeah, absolutely. And just referring back to that first Belgian goal, the the equaliser, the build-up play was was fantastic, and, and when it came to Kevin De Bruyne, they were analysing it on the BBC ahead of the uh, Netherlands game, and they literally, um, you know, they, the, the two strikers on the panel, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank and Alan Shearer, literally uh, said, you know, uh, we would have shot twice before Kevin De Bruyne actually did what he did, which was... To shift the ball past the onrushing defender and slide it across the face of the goal uh, to be tapped in. So brilliant composure there from Kevin De Bruyne. Touched on the the finish for the second goal. Sensational to strike a ball that cleanly on your weaker foot is is really something special. Uh, Kasper Schmeichel beaten. All ends up. And normally I'd look at a goalkeeper in that situation and say, hold on a minute. You know you can't be beaten. Sorry, you can't be being beaten at your near post like that. But such was the ferocity of the strike. I think you've just got to give it to Kevin De Bruyne, haven't you?
1: Yeah, I think the thing with the near post thing is not many people strike there because you're not supposed to score there. So I think there's an element of goalkeepers naturally not quite expecting it. And then too often, I I shall explain it. If you see a goalkeeper make a save at his near post, normally he's already started going the other way and then he falls back and makes the save right because it's hit with such ferocity as you've described Schmeichel can't do that that option isn't there so once he's moved away from that near post as he would do because he's got the rest of the goal to worry about you know nine times out of ten you don't get a shot that crisp it was a really really good finish and that's why that's why it's gone in so yeah I get the point about the near post I think um Cash Michael in the first game as well had a had a well a goal that he, he should have saved should have the saved it shouldn't he? irrespective of what had gone gone on before, you know, it's still, you know, it's still something you you got to you got to you got to be saving. Um, but I think this one was just a, a really good strike by a really good footballer. And if if hashtag DDL has, has got a bet on De Bruyne to score from outside the box, then then I'm all for it. I was just watching the replay just to check if that ball was just outside and um and um, yeah we we got it done so extra extra <laughs> ex, extra extra impressed um Man, yeah. extra impressed for, extra impressed for the strike for those for those selfish reasons that really really good performance by de bruyne and um, <clears throat> belgium we got quality going forward they've got quality going forward the reason i worry about them a little bit is the defenders are past their peak and as good as vatongen and van and alderveld were at their peak this isn't this doesn't feel to me like a Canavaro Nesta situation where where they never have a peak and should get better and better and better and I just think against the I don't want to be doom and gloom but I just think when he gets to the
0: final four I just don't I don't quite fancy him to do it and and you mentioned a few of those defenders there that you know maybe a little bit over the hill but <laughs> that denier centre-back just, to me just looks like an accident waiting to happen as well he He's always been the player over the years for Belgium when they've had these brilliant players.
1: And, you know, a lot of their best players at their peak aren't at their peak anymore. This is what my issue is. Like, Eden Hazard is not at his peak anymore. I don't care what anyone says. Moussa Dembele is one of the most ridiculous footballers I think I've ever seen, who, like, just is the most underappreciated player that's ever played. Incredible. Um, the three defenders I've mentioned. But when you looked at that team in history, there was always... You always looked at Denoye the, the, the and thought, What's what's he, he doing why there? is he in there yeah how's he how's he broken into this party like what's what, what's going on and he's still there and um that defense to me just does not look um it just does not look tournament winning quality and that's that's why I'm that's why I've been a bit negative about Belgium in the chat in terms of their prospects but if De Bruyne turns up and plays well on their day they can beat they can
0: beat anybody I guess Another player who was a difference maker for Belgium today was, in my opinion, Romelu Lukaku. Um, obviously played a massive role in both goals. In the first goal, he was the one that cut the ball back to uh, to Kevin De Bruyne, having sort of sprung the offside trap. But his movement in the lead up to the second goal was really important as well. And what you're seeing now, Dan, is, is a sophistication to Romelu Lukaku's game that I don't believe was there two or three seasons ago. Would you say that's fair? Yeah,
1: I would. Yeah, I would. I think he used. To, he's always scored goals. Let's have it right from the day he was born. The guy scored goals from when he turned up, um, well in Belgium at Andelek, wasn't it? And then he 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 come young at Chelsea. went to West Brom, scored goals there. Went to Everton, scored goals there. Back where, back to Inter. He's, he's wherever he's been. There's been goals, but nothing else. Um, I used to I used to kind of joke like. I would take him clearly. i will take him at Tottenham in an absolute heartbeat. But but if you asked me that two years ago, I wouldn't have. I would. I used to like joke about him and say, you know, he's so often he'd have to chase his first touch up the M62, like <laughs> when he was when he was at Manchester United. Um, and but now he looks like a complete forward, a complete forward who you, who you can rely on to bring others into play as he's done in this game. To finish a chance if he gets just one uh, you know he 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 can score in the air he can hold the ball up he's strong he looks fast he looks mobile for 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 a wide guy he looks really mobile and I think he is a complete striker now and I think he's gone from being either we got it wrong but he's gone from being an overrated striker to, to an underrated one in a, in a couple of years because I think there are people who are still associating him with with what he was before and perhaps aren't noticing some of these some of these changes to the game and maybe that comes with confidence maybe that move to Inter Milan away from the Premier League was at the right time for him and he's gone there he's he's won a league abroad he's been integral to that side and he's um yeah he's at his absolute peak absolute peak I'm I'm kind of expecting. Maybe not this season, but next season, a really big money move again, some, somewhere to one of the top, you know, top five, six or seven
0: clubs in Europe. Yeah, particularly with Inter's financial situation, you you certainly couldn't rule that out. Uh, so I, I tend to agree with you about Belgium overall in terms of their prospects. I think defence will, will probably ultimately let them down. I thought they had a massive Axel Witzel sized hole in the middle of the park until he came onto the pitch as well, um, which is... You know, something that, you know, you would have been concerned about, but those players are back now. So, you know, it is a boost for Belgium, but I I just, I see them falling slightly short. I'm not sure that Roberto Martinez has got it in him as well, which, you know, some people might say is harsh. But I thought if you watched that game from the very start, the Danes completely changed their system essentially to mirror what Belgium were doing. And they actually played it better because we've talked a lot about Belgium here. But Denmark could be pretty pleased with their performance, although the result wasn't what they had in mind.
1: Yeah, they they, they did a good job. Um, just on Roberto Martinez, I've got a feeling I'm going to be seeing a lot of Roberto Martinez next year, unfortunately.
0: Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, you know what? Let's just pause and let's just touch on that. What the hell is going on at Spurs? What the hell is going on? They, I, I'm just waiting for them to appoint their fifth-choice manager and then say, oh, we really wanted him all along. Um, I'll tell you,
1: I'll tell you if you've got a few seconds, I'll tell you what's happening no. about Spurs. And it is winding me up because of the lack of communication from the club. Like you should sense when the fans are getting techie and just release a statement that just says, you know, even if they say we expect to appoint a manager in the next three weeks, you know, they're just something simple like that. But what's happened at Spurs is the media have not at any point had a clue what's going on, they've got no idea. And basically, you've got Fabrizio Fabrizio Romano basically sending stuff out from his Twitter account that everyone leeches onto. The odds tumble in the betting market. All the bookies clear up, and and then a reason is given why he's not appointed. So my theory around this is we don't know who we want. We didn't have a plan. I think Conte became available, so we rang Conte up and asked to speak to him, and it became very clear that we couldn't attract Conte to the club disappointing for the fans but understandable we're talking about an elite manager and we're not a club capable of being an elite club this season so that's fine no problem I'm glad we rang him an ambitious club would ring him up but we haven't got a clue and Fabrizio Romano hasn't got a clue he's got no contacts I've never seen him in person he could be he could be for all I know he could be Paddy Power just with a Twitter account trying to boost like Boost betting supplies. Here we go. And so what I will say
0: what I will say though, Fabrizio Romano has been on this very show, Dan. Fabrizio Romano has been on the show. He's been play, on the show. He does exist. I don't know I'll where he play, gets his info from though. I'd
1: have to play that episode back. But I think I think the bottom line is I think if you look at everyone is leeching onto the media, it's very easy with a lot of followers to create a rumour that that sticks and flies. And I don't think Spurs have a clue. Hence my theory that Roberto Martinez, or even worse, Gareth Southgate. I think our manager is in this tournament. And that's why we don't know who it is yet, because it can't be announced. It can't be finalised. It can't be dealt with. And in the meantime, it's anyone who's ever managed in Italy who's been linked with a club. And no one's got a clue. I think if you look at uh, a rumour about, I don't know, let's say, I don't know, Spurs linked with Simone Inzaghi, which he was the favourite at one point. If you look at it and think, really, the reason you think really is because it's just not happened and and that's a that's where we are with tottenham
0: mess yeah. absolute mess agreed sorry sh- sorry no no, no agreed. agreed let's uh let's I just quickly sort of mentioned Denmark and I thought that their performance was pretty good even though the result wasn't what they'd hoped for but did you feel like the whole Christian Eriksen thing maybe played a part today because I felt like there was. It was great to see almost a full crowd in the stadium. The place was bouncing. The atmosphere was incredible. That stand behind one of the goals in particular was uh, jam packed, and the atmosphere looked phenomenal. But do you feel like that kind of? And I, I don't mean this to come across in a horrible way, and I don't want anybody to take it like that. But do you feel like the whole Christian Eriksen thing and and the kind of tributes to him? Um, <coughs> were a bit of a distraction for the Danes today and maybe their emotions took over yeah. and they weren't quite as pragmatic as they could have been.
1: I think, um, yeah, yes, I do to a degree. Look, I don't want to disrespect any, anyone with my views here or, you know, people having cardiac arrest is serious shit. You know, it's probably affected a lot of us in, in some form. And, and that that's, it's not a nice thing. I thought the tributes went too far at a professional level. Now, Let's get it right. He, he hasn't died, okay? Now, if he's died, that's, that's, that's a different level. And then you question whether they should be playing the game at all, We should be withdrawing from the tournament. He hasn't died. He's had a serious injury, a medical condition, but an injury, and he's had to withdraw from the tournament, and he's probably had to retire. I get the show of solidarity. I get the respect. I get the fans. I get Belgium playing the part. Where I draw the line was stopping the game at 10 minutes. Stopping the game at 10 minutes. This is top level football in a top level tournament. And people say the result doesn't matter. Well, if the result doesn't matter, then withdraw. Withdraw from the tournament. And not having the result doesn't matter. You've turned up. So at this point, you're 1-0 up after two minutes. And then after 10 minutes, you stop for a pause. And like, he hasn't died. Let's remember that point. If he had died and they wanted to applaud at that point, then maybe I'd have accepted it a little bit. That was the bit where it went too far for me. The, you'll never walk alone, all the clapping, the shirts. Brilliant, fantastic, really emotional and touching. But to stop a game of football and break momentum at ten minutes.
0: I just don't understand that. And I don't think I don't think it would have been a problem as such if they had waited until the ball went out and stopped for a, a brief pause. But what happened was Belgium <laughs> were in possession and they were quite far up the pitch as well at that point. And <laughs> the game was stopped. You know, they were booze and, and they were forced essentially to kick the ball out. Do you remember, do you remember when
1: the Premier League came back um, after the first lockdown and the first yep. few games and they introduced this ridiculous drinks break, which they said was because because of COVID, but really it was to see how it worked ahead of the Qatar World Cup, because it's going to be about 1100 degrees. That's why they did it. But you see how often those first few games within minutes of the of the drinks break, someone's conceded a goal or you see it happen a lot in football where an incident happens and then a goal goes in very, very quickly after. Focus has to be maintained at all times. You know, this is top level football and, you know, people might think I'm overreacting here, but I really don't think I am. Like, you've added a break in momentum and an opportunity for something to shift, but they shouldn't have done that. I thought that was ridiculous. I... Did, it affect the re- Did it affect the result? Maybe not, but... Were their minds on Christian Ericsson? If your mind being on Christian Ericsson is a distraction and affecting your ability to play, then keep it outside of the parameters of the game. Do it before the game, do it after the game. Do it at half time if you want. But during the game, you've done that to yourself then, Mark.
0: I, I don't feel as strongly about it as you do. I, I didn't really take issue with it, but I can see where you're coming from and I and I get I get the point. Um for me, is it something that that should have happened i i don't really have an issue with it happening the only thing like i said if i was a belgium fan i might have been a little bit frustrated at the particular timing of it because as i say belgium were quite far up the pitch at that point and you know the danes had kind of stopped there was whistles all around the stadium and belgium were almost bullied into putting the ball out of play at a time when they were in possession i'm not saying they would have scored from that particular passage of play but i can understand why somebody would feel that that was maybe a little bit too much. I I completely get where you're coming from on that. Um, Also today, uh, the Netherlands defeated Austria by two goals to nil. I didn't really think that was a particularly entertaining game, Dan. I've got to be honest. I don't know if uh, if I'm a little bit, I don't want to say I'm footballed out because I've really enjoyed the tournament so far, but I, I don't know. I was sitting there and I was kind of like, I wasn't dozing off, but my concentration was was on and off throughout that one. I didn't find it particularly encapsulating. Yeah, it was um, I got bored, to be honest.
1: I got bored, um, and I was really disappointed with Austria just in terms of what they offered to the game. And that didn't help. Um, But do you know what I found really odd in the game? And I don't know if this was just just me and a, a bit like you. It's not being footballed out, but I've seen better games this week and I know there's better games ahead next week. So this game to me just felt like, I don't know, an extra course of food that I didn't really need. But I'm going to eat it anyway, you know. Yeah. um. So so I've watched the game like everyone else. And what I found really weird was the atmosphere in the um in the Amsterdam arena felt really, really subdued that it wasn't the normal bounce you, you get from the Orange Army. And I don't think that particularly helped my mood either. Um, Holland scored really really early and Austria offered absolutely nothing and I can't work out if Holland played well or Austria was terrible and I know that's harsh because if you watch a game like that if it was your team playing so yesterday I was on talking about Italy if Italy put in the Holland performance I'd have been absolutely delighted with it I'm watching Holland and I'm wondering whether the opposition were just terrible but Austria offered nothing there's some decent players on that pitch I know he's well he's not old really Alaba but he got forward once in the whole game. So Bitsa was playing deeper than I really expected him to. Um, there was no real attack in play. I think it took that to the 88th minute for their first um, shot on target, which was, which was the feeble header from the substitute. And I just didn't think they offered anything to add to the entertainment of the football match. And that's why I, I just found it really boring.
0: Agreed. But have we... I, I was thinking about this during the game as well. Is it because we're seeing a more efficient Dutch side... As opposed to the usual flair that we've maybe associated with Dutch sides over the years, that we're looking at this and we're going, this doesn't fall right. It doesn't fit with the narrative. It doesn't fit with the orange kit, the crowd all dressed in orange in Amsterdam Arena. There could be an element of that as well. Um, Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I mean, like in the first game, they won 3 2, didn't they? And that's more. That what, was more man. on brand, wasn't it? It was a thriller. Yeah. There was attacking yeah. football from both sides. That yeah. was more on brand, I felt.
1: Yeah. I think when people talk about, I don't know, the, the West Ham way or the Arsenal way or the Tottenham way or the Man United way, you know, sometimes that feels valid and sometimes it feels like an excuse for stuff. But there's always been a Holland way. They have a way of playing. And when I buy a ticket to watch a Holland game, you know, I know roughly what I'm going to get. I didn't get that tonight. I'm not sure why. Um, I'm not sure why that was. Because even their centre halves, they can, they, they can, they're still ball playing centre halves. Frankie De Jong goes deep, and his first movement is normally to look forward and attack. And they did get their, they did get their fullbacks up really high. I mean, the, the the goal was scored by the right wing back, wasn't it, from about five yards? You know, just tucked in the box. So I think some of those traits were still there. I just think it was a game that Holland knew they had won really, really early, and they were
0: happy with what they had yeah agreed and and while we were watching the game we we were texting one another and i and i asked you the question and i'm going to share the answer uh with those who are watching or listening because i'm not sure this is necessarily common knowledge maybe it is and maybe i was just being stupid but the question kind of came to my mind as to why the netherlands play in orange given that their flag is made up of red white and blue and the answer is uh that the dutch royal family Name is Orange Nassau. And it goes all the way back to their ancestor, who was known as William the Orange, who was around in the 1500s. He's supposed to be the uh, forefather of, uh, or the founding father, if you like, of of the Netherlands as a nation. And uh, he always used the color orange because it was part of his name um, as a color to symbolize uh, national unity and Dutch pride. And it's stuck ever since then. The reason the flag changed to red from what I read this evening is because the color orange was more difficult to make back in those days um, when they were making flags and the Dutch relied on uh, travel. Just mix it with a bit of yellow. Yeah. Well, you'd think that, but it's not. We're talking about the 1500s here where the Dutch relied on, on overseas trade and used the the sea a lot. They said that the red was uh, more, Obvious in it that it could be spotted more easily, but also it was uh, more difficult to make that color. That's what I read. Don't know anyone's got the uh, an find, alternative to that. Let me know because uh, you, be you
1: find a podcast that provides that level of education. You've you never listened, you've never listened to a pod like this, but it got me thinking as well. Something I've never thought about in my life. And obviously, I don't want to take over the pod, but probably one for the listeners for the next few minutes, right? So, Italy wear blue and their flag is okay. green, white, and red. So, and then it got me thinking then, well, actually, how many teams are there that wear football shirts that don't match their flag? So if anyone in the chat has got any football, any international football clubs. So Moldova, they wear literally a yellow top, blue shorts and red socks, and it matches their flag completely identically. But if anyone's got any football nations who wear a shirt that isn't in their flag, can we have them? And uh, I'm going to do some research on them. Um, next time next time I'm, I'm in the toilet for a long time
0: <laughs> Cyprus is another one their flag is white with a, <clears throat> a gold slash orange uh, sort of shape of the island and then a green olive branch at the bottom yet they play in blue uh, but that would be due to their Greek links I'd imagine but yeah it's, it's another one whose kit doesn't match uh, what it is that their, their, their flag shows but Let's, uh, let's move on to preview the big one because uh, we spent way too long talking about the other games, but it was always going to happen, whatever. Um, good conversation, as always. But let's look ahead now to the big game at Wembley, which takes place on Friday night, England versus Scotland. Now, I'm going to share with you guys what we think are going to be the two starting lineups. Now, of course, you know, if you're watching on the on the video, then you've got this these visuals to help you. But if not, don't worry. I'm going to run through it. Um, but we've kind of looked at what might happen you know we've gone based on the last games based on the fitness updates at the time of recording and for england we've gone with pickford in goal back four of walker stones mings and shaw now harry maguire is said to be fit enough to be available at some point but not necessarily to start that's what gareth southgate's update was um at the time of recording. Uh, I think there'll probably be Rice and Phillips in the centre of midfield with Mason Mount just slightly in advance of those two. And then I've put Sterling and Foden on either flank because that's what Southgate went with in the first game. Harry Kane up front. Um, Just quickly run through the Scotland team. Uh, We think that it's going to be a back three of Hendry, Hanley and Tierney. O'Donnell, McGinn, McTominay, Armstrong and Robertson across the middle. So O'Donnell and Robertson, of course, Operating as wing backs with Lyndon Dykes and Christie as the front two. Now, a couple of questions that I'm going to throw at you, um, DDL. uh, Before I do that, Graham Beecroft, Germany's kit doesn't match their flag either. There you go. That's another good one. Um, With the England team, Kieran Trippier playing at left back against Croatia, was that a deliberate ploy made for Croatia? Or was it something that Gareth Southgate did and may do? moving forward? Because he did talk after the game about the fact that he wanted Kieran Trippier to talk Tyrone Mings through the game. So do you feel like Southgate will stick with Trippier at left back or is there a possibility that Shaw or Chilwell comes into the side? I found that comment absolutely baffling, by the way.
1: He wanted wanted a player to talk someone for a game, so he chose Kieran Trippier. What was he saying to him? That Luke Shaw... (laughs) What was he saying to him that Luke Shaw? and this is not a, a hundred cap international who's like you know I yeah okay he's played in the Champions League Final and was pretty rubbish he's won a league for Atletico Madrid it happens but I, I could not understand that at all you're not going to completely tactically disable one core of your defense just to talk someone just to talk to someone oh, I couldn't understand that so I think it was a deliberate choice to pick him tactically and it's either what he offers from set pieces or or the ability to, the ability to have a right-footed player on that side of the pitch to whip balls in. I, I, that's that's all I can think of. I can't. I think he'll start again. Um, I think he'll start again. I think I think we're going to see the same side. So looking at the what we what we think here with this, I, I would. I've got a feeling he's going to play Trippier again, and everything else. So let's be. change it's, that then. This is my with, feeling.
0: Yeah. Uh, let's go with like, Trippier. So you think the midfield duo of Rice and Phillips will remain? <laughs>
1: Yeah yeah I do um I think um Phillips earned his place with that um with that performance in the, in the last game he was arguably England's best player um so I think he's he, he's done now the only question mark is does does mount potentially rotate there's a lot of strength in those three positions behind Kane isn't there in depth so does does he give greedish game having seen Mount in the first game? But I, I think like you say he's gonna um I think like you say he's gonna leave it. He's gonna leave it as it was. Um I think that's his what he believes is his best eleven. Um you've got Marshall about twenty-five yards too deep, mate. He stays about here. <laughs> <clears throat> Marshall just in front of Hanley. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I think that's a team. I think, I think you've got it pretty much bang on, but I can't see that he's genuinely started trippier just to talk to someone. I think he, he wants in there. And um, I think that
0: was a poor excuse to get him through an interview. It was a poor excuse, but also what does that say about Tyro Mings that you've taken this guy to a, to a, a European championships. You've played him ahead of Ben White, ahead of Connor Cody. You've got Fakayo Tamori, who's had an incredible time at AC Milan, who's just about to join them on a permanent transfer, who you've completely overlooked, not even taken to the tournament, yet you've put Tyrone Mings in, who needs Kieran Trippier <coughs> next to him to talk him through the game. It just its baffling. Uh, it is baffling. But moving into that midfield, i uh, this is an unpopular opinion, right? And I've been taking stick for this on Twitter over the last few days from Leeds fans. Man, you know what? When I was younger, I used to hate Leeds United, okay? absolutely despised them. And when they came back into the Premier League or the season before they came back into the Premier League, I was actually covering them in one of my jobs. And I really kind of got into Leeds and I liked what they were about under Marcelo Bielsa. And I liked the direction in which they were going and I, I could really get behind it. And then this week, I remembered why I despised Leeds United and their fans and everything about the football club. Um, because I said that in my opinion, Calvin Phillips was effective against Croatia because he physically had the upper hand on a very technically gifted, but physically lacking Croatian midfield. I thought that Calvin Phillips at times smashed into them, got in and amongst them. And I think that's why he looked superior. That's why he looked dominant. And what I said was, yes, it worked on the day, but you come up against Pogba and Kante, for example, and all of a sudden, you can't do that. You're not going to bully them off of the ball. You're not going to have a superior physicality to them. And, and therefore, that advantage disappears. And I question whether Calvin Phillips is good enough, really, uh, to mix it with the big boys at the top, top level. Am I being unfair on no, Calvin think, Phillips?
1: No, I don't think you are. I think, I think um, if anything, it's a compliment. What What's wrong with being a physical player? You know, if that's what he is, that's what he is, then you play him in the games where he can use that strength. If you're a clever manager, if Gareth Southgate's a clever manager and he sees it the same way, he wouldn't pick him by default. You you should have a squad that you utilize in different like, in different circumstances. So what we're basically saying is he is physically stronger than his opponents in the last game. I think that's a compliment. You know, it's a having physical midfielders has never hurt anyone before. You know, Roy Keane was a, a very physical midfielder, it works out right for him. You know, I think Vieira had a bit more to his game, but he was physical. No drama at all. But I agree completely. You know, there's gonna be games where where the midfield is tough and then you need to be physical and technical. So I guess it's the Leeds fans issue that they believe he's a complete midfielder.
0: Yeah, and, and, and that I was kind of <clears throat> rubbishing Calvin Phillips. I I just I just don't think he's an elite think, midfielder. And I think that the bottom line here is that if if Jordan Henderson's fit, Calvin Phillips doesn't get a look in. And and I think people have yeah, forgotten I
1: think, that. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's true. And I think, look, he played a very, very good defence-splitting pass um, through... Now, what I'd say to the Leeds fans who clearly aren't listening, that he played a really good defence-splitting pass through to the, that led to the goal. But actually, what made that pass so good? What made that pass so good, Leeds fans, is because deep down, put your hand on your heart and tell me this... Were you expecting him to have the capability to do that? No, he wasn't. So don't get defensive now because he's pulled one out and people are questioning him. The reason you're so impressed with it, because let's be fair, that is a pretty basic pass for a technically good midfielder. So if he's that technically good, don't get overexcited about it. You shouldn't even remember it because he does it every week. That's the first time he's pulled a pass out of like that in his entire career. It's a bit like Trippier's free kick in the in the semi-final. <laughs> he he po- he popped this free kick out of absolute nowhere. And he's bent it in the top corner. And, you know, well done. But the reason you were so absolutely stunned and delirious by it is because you just weren't expecting it. because you didn't think he had it in the locker. So there's no Leeds fans listening. So I don't know why I'm getting so passionately angry. <laughs> but you've basically lost your own argument by by completely lynching onto this one performance because you're you're by definition, by admission, saying I didn't think he had it in him.
0: Yeah, agree. Thank you very much. Moving on to the, the two wide positions, um, Sterling, Foden, would you stick with them? Would you do something different? I know you've been quite quite critical of Sterling in the past. Did he do enough though for you against Croatia to to suggest he deserves to retain his place?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, he he played well. He scored the winning goal, um, which almost you know should make you almost undroppable for the next game. I have been critical of Sterling, and I've not been critical of him as a as a player. What I've said about Sterling, and I still say about Sterling, is Sterling is. This is going to sound really harsh. I'm going to get pelters for this, but fuck it. Sterling is a bridesmaid. Okay, <laughs> Sterling is a Sterling is a very 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 good player who, when he plays with world-class players, he excels and he provides a really good, you know, best supporting actor. That's how I describe Sterling. So when he played for Liverpool and Suarez was exceptional in Sterling's breakthrough season, Sterling was exceptional. I've said this before. I've said this many times before, as Harry will tell. I've said this for years. When Suarez left Liverpool and was replaced by, who was it, someone ridiculous, Ricky Lambert, Sterling had an absolutely appalling, appalling season. When he played for Man City and Aguero was there up top, firing all cylinders, Sterling was fantastic. When Aguero's out injured, Sterling disappears and shirks and he has a weaker season. Sterling is a supporting act. When Kane plays well for England, when Kane was dropping deep and pinging in balls and he was scoring goals against Spain, Sterling looked good. Sterling needs someone world-class around him. And and that's, that's all I say about Sterling. So it's not criticising him. It's me saying what I believe his role is. So... If Kane doesn't play, even if Kane plays badly, doesn't matter. Kane occupies players, and that's how Sterling gets space. Um, So um, that's my view on Sterling. But I think he he needs to start. He played well. He's better than the other options. He's far better than Rashford. He's still better than Sancho. He's had a bad season by his standards. It doesn't mean it's a bad season. So I think he definitely starts. I don't think it's unreasonable to not play Foden. Um, but I would, I would still start Foden against, against this opposition. Um, I, I don't see why not. But I don't see anything wrong later in the tournament of bringing Foden off the bench. I don't think Foden needs to be an g- absolute guaranteed starter. You know, he's still an absolute rookie at this level. Um, I know you could say the same about Rice, the same about Phillips um, at this level. But Foden is still a relative rookie at international football. It is a different game. So I wouldn't be surprised if... If it's not this game, the next game we see Foden dropped out to the bench, um, and Rashford and Sancho given a start, or and then and then and then um, he's bought in off a bench to try and influence a game from there. You know, you don't have to win the game in the first half.
0: Yeah, no, agreed. Um, just sort of moving on uh, in terms of looking ahead to this one. I, I just want to make it clear that I do feel that England should beat Scotland. I do feel that England are far superior. I love Scotland in terms of the heart with which they play. Uh, The effort is 10 out of 10. You know, I always say it, but I've been to Hampden Park to watch Scotland and I instantly kind of fell in love with the whole, um, you know, the whole atmosphere. It was incredible. And I think that they'll be coming down here, obviously a little bit disappointed that they lost the first game because had they won it or at least got a point, it would really change their outlook going into this game. And now it's almost where you'd have expected them to come, sit back and try and nick a goal. They almost have to be proactive now. And I don't think that works in their favour. But just looking at the way they're likely to line up, Dan, we know know Steve Clark likes to play this way. It's a 3-5-2. It poses England a different problem to the one they faced against Croatia. And I'm just wondering whether you think that England should consider matching it up or if they're they should i personally think england are good enough and have enough quality to say you know what we're just going to play our game and get on with it because i think the gap in class between the two sides is that big but playing this way playing the scotland way does pose significant issues that england didn't have to deal with in the first game so for example two center forwards to to occupy the two center backs means there's no longer a spare man there was plenty of spare time uh, on the ball for those centre-halves against Croatia, who essentially played without a front man. You look at the wing-backs, who are going to be bombing on forward, and we know what you know how good Robertson can be, which is ultimately going to ping back Trippier and Walker, who have been massive for England in terms of getting forward. You look at that midfield, and when I talked about the physical superiority that England's midfield had over the Croatians, they're not going to have that against Armstrong, McTominay, and, and McGinn. I feel those three guys, from a physical standpoint, can definitely match them up, um, and and I would argue that maybe actually they're probably more physical. So this this system and this approach that Scotland are likely to take, it poses different <laughs> challenges uh, to England. And so, are, are those challenges significant enough, in your opinion, for Gareth Southgate to say we need to be different? We need yeah. to do something different here. So. I
1: think if I'm Gareth Southgate, I I wouldn't change my shape at home against Scotland. I would expect Scotland to come at me like lunatics for the first half hour, and I would spe- expect Scotland to fizzle out, and I would trust my defenders to be able to hold Scotland off for half an hour. And if I can't hold Scotland off for half an hour, I would trust my forwards to, to rectify the situation in the second half. Because if Scotland score... Scotland will stop immediately and they will have something to cling to. Um, I, I think if you told Scotland, this is going to sound ridiculous. If you told Scotland now they beat England um, and still go out of the tournament in the group stage, I think they'd still take it. Like that's how, that's how much this game will mean to them. So in terms of a shape change, I can't do that at home to Scotland. That That's not enough of a reason for me to change the shape that I've been working on for, for, for two years through qualifying, but <clears throat> personnel changes, is something I would certainly consider. So picking on Foden again in this case, and I'm picking on Foden not because he's a bad player, but would I rather, we're talking about, let's be fair, right? Dykes is rubbish. Let's let's make no bones about it, right? He does a job, but he's rubbish. The strength is, as you said, the fullbacks bombing forward. Well, who is more likely to pin Robertson back? Someone like Sancho there, um, I don't like Rashford as a player. I, I, I don't think he's top-level international quality. I think he's a good Premier League player, and that's, that's there's a big difference. But I would look at that position there, the Foden position. I would have someone pacer and more aggressive, similar to Sterling's style of play, to try and push Robinson back. If Tierney doesn't play, I think that's really big for England because, because Tierney can get forward as well. Tierney can leave that three quite easily. Hendry and Hanley will, will surround Harry Kane. And Tierney could act as a spare, midf- uh, a spare, a spare defender who sort of runs out to support the attacks. If he doesn't play, um, you've got a good opportunity to pin Robertson back, and then a lot of Scotland's plan A is completely out the window. So with a personnel change, that's how I would approach this game, and it would be, it would be one of the faster players, probably Sancho instead of Foden, um, to start the game and and pin Scotland back, and that is all I would do, and that would be enough to contain any any adventurous idea Scotland had of um, of trying to win this game in the first half.
0: Yeah, I I, I think on balance I, I probably agree with you that I wouldn't make the the person the system change anyway. But you can also change it kind of in game as well, couldn't you? You could always have Kieran Trippier stepping further up the pitch and Raheem Sterling essentially tucking in a little bit more like he would naturally anyway. And that becomes all but, of a sudden, doesn't it? I mean how is he, he going to
1: talk to Tyron Mings, <laughs>
0: he's too far away. He's too way far way away. There. Tyrone, Tyrone. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Um, but yeah, you know, you could you could shift that around, and you could accommodate it when off, or, well, when out of possession, I guess. Uh, so there are ways around that for sure as well. Um, just to kind of wrap up, what sort of chance do you give Scotland to come to Wembley? and get a result because you know the kind of football romantic in me and and listen I'm not I'm not an England fan I I don't particularly care um who wins the game I I just you know for me I love seeing an underdog do well and I know how much it means to the Scots and if they were to come that England are going to get through anyway if Scotland were to come and and get three points and that was going to take them through I'd actually be quite happy for that to happen so you know i'm trying to sort of work out how much of a chance they have but every time i think about it rationally i keep coming back to an england win where are you kind of sitting on it i think i think they've got they've got a puncher's
1: chance if that makes sense you know they've got a puncher's chance if they if they can take the lead during the first 15 20 minutes where they're gonna have a spell i promise you if any England fans watching, the first 20 minutes of this game is not going to be enjoyable. Scotland are gonna Scotland are gonna come out and they're gonna swing. And if they get a goal and they can keep their discipline, um use the experienced players like McTominay to support the to support the back line and shut England out. Um if you play deep against England and keep Harry Kane quiet, you know, you've got a chance to shut them out for a period of time. There was only one goal against Croatia at the end of the day, and you know, Scotland uh, England haven't actually been free scoring. But I think this is going to be one of those brave derby type performances from the underdog. But the class and extra quality is going to shine through when it matters. And I think England are going to win by by the odd goal, whether one nil or two one. Um, similar to when England played Wales at the last Euros, yeah. they didn't really deserve it, but they got it done. And um, I, I, that's what
0: I'm expecting from. That's what I'm expecting from this game. Yeah, I think it's probably going to be. Quite spot on. Uh, don't forget, if you are watching us live, make sure you hit the like button because there's over 150 of you watching us right now across the multiple platforms. Uh, but we've only got 20 likes on the board, so let's at least get that up to 50 by the time we wrap up the show and run the outro. Uh, a big thank you to Daniel in the chat for your very kind super chat donation, mate. He says he's very excited for the game. Daniel, thank you so much, and a big thank you to every single one of you who has joined us, who's watching it live going to listen to it back or watch it back uh, we appreciate all your support but please make sure you hit the like button you subscribe to the channel if you're new and if you're listening via audio you leave us a review uh, dan thank you so much mate um really appreciate your insight as always great chat and uh, i look forward to uh, catching up with you on the next one yeah my pleasure I'm sure i'll be back on soon For sure, for sure. Right, that concludes this edition of our Euro 2020 Daily Podcast. We'll be back very, very soon with more. Until then, take care. Ciao. You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguda, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler and you're listening to Harry Simeon.